Productions. Hello, Katarina. Hi, Victoria. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I just got home just in time. Had a really great book to listen to on my drive. Global Brain. How was your day? Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, me. I'm right here by the water. It's so pretty. The view here. It's amazing. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. How's your day? Hello, Victoria. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Hi, Howard. How are you? Can you hear me well? The unmute button to speak is, should be all the way on the bottom right corner. There's a I microphone. See. Ah, oh, there. Now you there can hear you me. Go. Okay, yep, good. So are we audio only or are we visual too? Um, audio, I mean, we can share. If you would like to have a visual, we can share a presentation or a link to something you would like to share do you do you have a link or well only um, you know only my video um so so if we can't do video let's do audio and i'll put this phone in my holster and i won't have to hold it which will be very nice um so there we go are we still on yes we are we are oh, on. good terrific so Perfect. Thank you for your patience. I mean, I got sick for two months, um, which very seldom happens. Um, so I was I was very glad that you uh, retained your interest. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. Uh, you your books are you know so interesting, and I the global brain like was really. You know, oh, I was hoping somebody would catch on to that one because that, in a sense, is the most revolutionary book of them all. Yes, I agree. So, you know, that's why I really invited you and really hope that, you know, and I'm so glad you said yes. So, and well, you I came hope on you like the next one. I'm working on the eighth one, and it's the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. And it's also designed to turn the way that we think in science about nature in particular on its head. Um, and to think of, uh, and to turn the way we think about the entire evolution of the cosmos, 13.8 billion years of it um, on its head. We're ready for that. <laughs> Good. Yes, we are. Good. Yeah, we've so been anticipating you. <laughs> Who's who's here in the room? So it's Katarina. Yep. And who else? And so can you? Oh, sorry. Are you asking in terms of you can't see your screen well, or in terms of introductions? Oh, I've put you in my holster, so I can't <laughs> see. So introductions. 
would be helpful. Okay, so you can't see because we can um, these days on the app. We also have a functionality that we can share gifts, so we could, you know, as um, visual. You were asking about visual, but it wouldn't be something that you could choose to share. So okay, you won't be seeing us. We will not share gifts to you. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a deprivation! It's not Christmas. I know, unless we ask to be please taken out of your holster. So hello. Right. Gloria and Gloria. Uh, almost one more try. Victoria. Victoria. Ah, yeah. I love it. Okay. All right. And then we have Jamie and Jamie. and Ceci Rahim. And Ceci Rahim. How do you spell that? Ceci Rahim, are you near your mic? C well, I've I've okay. I've I spelled C E S S I. Uh, R A M. Uh, no, R R A H I M. Is that close, close enough? Um, yeah. Let's replace the S S with a C I. So C E C I. Ah, as in uh, Turkish. Exactly. Yes, because yes, she has a really lovely story about the origin of her name. Maybe. Oh, that's terrific. Mm hmm. And maybe she'll share it when she comes to her right. mic. And then next to Sessi Rahim, we have Gilbert. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. And what are your what are your backgrounds? Okay, Katarina, are you sharing your background? I have a yes. more specific sure. question. This is called the Quantum Photonics Club. Now I um, lectured. Oh, so, but no, this is the Science uh, Society. So yeah. the, the, the what yes. society? Science Society. Science Society. So, oh, so I got quantum yeah. photonics down there at oh, some point. Oh, okay. I don't know well, how. Maybe you'll visit them sometime soon. There's a lot of choice here in Clubhouse. However, um, Katarina, I'm sure, was contacted you, and Science Society is so happy to be the club to welcome good, you today. Good. <laughs> Warmly welcome you. Good. Hopefully I'm delighted. Warm. And you're you're uh, sort of headquartered around NYU. Yes, so yeah, exactly. I'm at NYU. I also work for a company, 3D Bio. Um, so we do like 3D printing of organs. And yeah, and I've founded the Science Society here too. Um, we mostly, you know, invite authors, um, scientists, and to talk about like, work that is really interesting and that people can share it and have a platform to share it here uh, because you know when when first clubhouse started people heard i was a scientist and then invited me to all these different rooms to talk about all kinds of different science topics and i said okay i'm a scientist but i don't know everything about science right um so I said, yeah, let me try to invite colleagues that can explain this better to you. So it kind of turned into a thing. And yeah, then then people said, yeah, maybe, you know, you should have your own club where you do this regularly. Right. Because it's really interesting. And that's what then I did. Then I created this club. And yeah, we had a lot of speakers coming and unless they are just being very friendly people enjoy also coming here and sharing their, their science story like from a personal view but also like them about the science itself right or their work um has been a lot of fun very informative 
and people we learned a lot so yeah it's it's been a great thing like it turned into almost like a full-time job fantastic oh, katarina where are you from <laughs> so originally i was born in portugal my parents are portuguese but i grew up in germany and right. then yeah, and then I did my PhD at Duke University and NYU, and then I moved back, and then I came back again and did different postdocs at the Marine Biological Laboratory, Stony Brook University, and then I came back to NYU again, and yeah, and also working for a company, so moved around a little bit. Well, that's amazing because that's a multi, really a multicultural background, Portugal and Germany. They're very different parts of Europe. It's almost like different continents um, in terms of culture. At least that's my impression. It really um, is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one is Mediterranean. I had a girlfriend for a little while from Portugal and, uh, and she was informing me about the mistress culture there and at everything she just and she was in uh i think denmark at the time or finland and and uh, so she felt very out of her element in a vastly different culture then she spent the rest of her life at oxford so even yet another culture hi everyone hey sorry <laughs> and and who's this hi my name is sister Rahim. it's nice to meet you Oh, Sister Raheem, yes, oh, yes. Oh, that's I, all right, thank you. <laughs> yes, I have you down on my little list. I find the Turkish uh, background very interesting. Oh, I'm not a Turk, um, actually. Oh, so where are you from? Well, that is a very loaded question for me, but let's just say I'm from California. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh. okay. Um, but how do you get that kind of a spelling? I mean, what's the der the ethnic derivation of your name? Okay, so my name is a it's a made up name. My parents made it up. Uh, my ah. <laughs> my mom has a, a Christian Italian name. Her name is Cecilia, and my dad is Muslim. He's well, his background is Muslim. He has an Arabic name. It's Ibrahim, which means right. Abraham in English. Right. So right. they just put their names together. <laughs> Cecilia and Ibrahim made my name Cecilia. Aha, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's nothing Turkish about it. No, at all. it's not. Um, <laughs> I don't know. They just sound Turkish. That's so interesting. Because I've heard Jewish. Yes, because of the sea. It's because of the, the way the sea is used. Oh, um, okay. Um, yeah, I've heard Jewish. Some people say Italian. Some people were calling me Chichi right here. Right. I was like, oh, that's not it. <laughs> right. So yeah. now, what, before I spend the entire time, quizzing you. Um, so do you have some questions, some lines of thinking you'd like to pursue? Are you asking us uh, as a collective? Because yeah, you're, you can relax and we will, um, not that you aren't relaxed, but yes, we absolutely do have an idea of a flow. And, and much of that has to do with your idea of, of the room flow. But we usually ask with, um, excuse me, begin, Katarina will share some information about you. And then if it's okay with you, then I will ask you a few questions, um, more personal in nature, uh, just about your, your connection to science. Right. And then we will hand it to you and, and hope to have a nicely flowing discussion about your work and your, your thought. Well, that sounds terrific to me. I'm all set. 
Yeah, good. Well, it's three o'clock. So Katarina, I'm going to pass the mic back to you so that we can get started. Yes, wonderful. And welcome Victoria. So also, there's another Victoria here, Howard, who's just joined uh -huh. us. All Hi, right. Victoria. <laughs> Hello, just to create a little confusion on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. We are very honored to have um, you all here, but of course, a special welcome to Howard Bloom. Uh, we really appreciate that you came here, you went to the, you know, struggle to make this account young clubhouse and so on so so thank you for that first of all and um yeah for accepting our invitation and before we start as victoria said let me share a little bit information to the audience that um so howard bloom he is the author of seven really interesting books um the one book is the lucifer principle which is a scientific expedition into forces of history and um the book that um um really stood out to me also was the global brain the evolution of mass mind from the big bang to the 21st century and um it's a really interesting um new vision about it's a different way of thinking um, about evolution. And I think the book is really, has a lot um, of really um, interesting information and points that I think are really important to discuss. And um, yeah, um, Howard Bloom um, um, got many awards. Um, he was recognized by, you know, a lot of uh, news channels um um even um the um, energy department darpa ibm and mit um were joined um by the state um by and representatives of the state department um to discuss um theories that howard bloom um created and um he was um called the next in a lineage of seminal thinkers that includes Newton, Darwin, Einstein, Freud, and Buckminster Fuller by the Britons, by um, news channels and Britain. And um, yeah, he also created um, a science um, um, institutions or um, society. Um, and um, they're also really interesting but i don't want to take everything away because i think it's way more interesting if we discuss this in an interview format than um me just um summarizing all the facts so i'll hand it over to victoria uh, who is really wonderful at uh, performing these interviews and uh yeah go ahead victoria uh -huh. thank you well, thank you, Katarina. Those are kind words. And Howard, everything Katarina said, we're really happy to have you here. And and you had mentioned earlier the idea of turning the science world on its head. And and we appreciate you maybe more than you know for that 
um, the direction of your of your thought, especially with um, in terms of challenging the idea of survival of the fittest, um, and including your ideas of the cooperative ideas of evolution. Because for many of us, if we, um, you know, if you have if you are of indigenous culture or depending on on your culture at all and, and your teaching or even your view of the world, maybe that just that didn't seem um, like it was the only order of things and the only way of thought and maybe maybe more hierarchical than than just makes sense to some of us. So we really appreciate you greatly and and the creativity of your thought and your work and our goal is to help promote science and share scientific thought and make it accessible and also to um to really learn about the the origins of that scientific spark and so my my first question to you is if you can think about somewhere in your lifetime if there was an experience or an event that had provided you with the original spark for your interest in science and that can go back to formative years of childhood or really any time that well there's a, an unequivocal moment um i grew up in buffalo new york i was a totally lost child other children wanted to have absolutely nothing to do with me and my parents didn't have time for me and weren't the least bit interested in me so I grew up basically a social. And one day a book appeared in my lap in my family's big living room. And uh, I don't know where it came from. You know, how you know the location of all of your parents' books because they've been in the same place ever since you came to consciousness. And this was a book that didn't belong in there anywhere. And it said the first two rules of science are these the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo, and it told the story all wrong, the mythologized version. I wouldn't know that for another 20 or 30 years, but thank God I got the mythologized version. I needed an example of unequivocal courage. And uh, the second law of science, it said, uh, the second rule of science was look at things run under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look for the things that are invisible to you because you and everybody around you take them for granted and pull them into visibility and question them. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the inventor of the microscope, looking down at pond water for the first time and seeing that humans had shared a vast world, well, a world with a vast panoply of animals that were invisible to us um, ever since we come to consciousness as human beings, and we hadn't known it before. So that was it. I needed, the first rule was the rule of courage. The second rule, look at things right under your nose, was the rule of awe, wonder, and surprise. And those two rules became my religion, and science became my only source of life. Because in science, I could hang out with Galileo and Anton von Leeuwenhoek, and a good many others, and they couldn't reject me for a simple reason, they were dead. And uh, I had never run into that before, people who couldn't reject me. So that's uh, it. Yeah, thank that's you. I got involved. But there's another key point that has to do with this business of turning science on its head. And I've realized it in writing the eighth book that I'm about 75% of the way through, maybe even a little further than that. And when I was, well, first of all, I started reading science and science fiction. I started reading two books a day. So those two books a day were my education. I read one book under the uh, desk at school, 
and I run, read another book when I got home. I don't know how I could, was able to go through books so fast. I can't do that <laughs> these days. Um, I stop and think too much. Um, but um, one of those books was apparently Isaac Asimov's, one of the books in Isaac Asimov's um, uh, trilogy of, God, what is it called, Foundation. And he uses a term um, of group behavior. And he imagines group behavior to be a new science that's all mathematical and where you could predict mass human behavior with absolute precision. Well, I'm, I've never been mathematical in a normal way. And so that didn't appeal to me. But I have been on the track of group behavior ever since then. And I call one of my fields now uh, group behavior from the group behavior of quarks to the group behavior of human beings, because it's all the group behavior, all up and down the evolutionary scale. And uh, the second thing that was turned out to be more important than I realized at the time, um, my parents, seeing how terribly I was doing um, in normal public schools, and I was being bullied by teachers and stuff like that, for reasons you can understand, you do not, you like people to pay some attention to you. If a kid is sitting there reading a book and paying no attention to you whatsoever, that can be a little off-putting. So they offered me the chance to go to a private school, and they sent me uh, to an interview with the headmaster. I'm 12 years old. Now imagine this. I walk into this headmaster's office. He is a big man who cultivates a sphinx-like appearance. He deliberately sits in the shadow on a tweed jacket, smoking a pipe so you can't see his face. Um, he's deliberately there to all, overawe you. And I walk into his office and I say, look, I will only come to your school on the following conditions. First of all, you have to teach me Russian because Russia is going to be an important country in the future. Secondly, you have to reverse the order of your science courses. Right now you teach biology first, you teach chemistry second, and you teach physics third. For me, you're going to have to reverse that order. You're going to have to give me physics first. So you tell me the story of the Big Bang and the evolution of elementary particles. Now, in those days, that was the year that Fred Hoyle, um, the promoter of steady state theory of the universe, was sure he was going to stomp Big Bang theory of the universe out of existence. And no one would ever hear of it again. But I was absolutely wedded to it at the age of 12. So first, you're going to teach me physics, the origins of elementary particles and atoms. Then you're going to teach me um, chemistry, because that's what happens when atoms get together and socialize. Um, then you're going to teach me biology, because that's what happens when megamolecules get together and socialize. Then you're going to teach me anthropology, so I can understand the origin of culture, of human cultures, the prehistoric origin of cultures. And then you're going to teach me history. And he went along with me. He taught me, he, he put physics first, he put chemistry second, and he put biology third. Unfortunately, it was a wash because they lost their science teachers that year. And science was being taught by the physical education teacher who really didn't know any science. So <laughs> it was all useless. And an incredible program developed at Harvard by Jerome Bruner came in the next year. So if I'd done things in the traditional way, I could have had this tremendous program. Didn't matter. I did all my learning by reading two books a day anyway. It really didn't matter. 
but one way or the other, for some reason, at the age of 12, that impulse to create a timeline of the universe was in me. And uh, when I went to NYU, um, my, my freshman year, I was incredibly confused. I first, you know how hard it is at the beginning of a semester to even find your way to your classrooms and to remember the correct times for your classes. It might be easier now with Google Calendar, but it wasn't easy in those days. But what was most confusing was I had 17th century poetry and I had history and I had biology and I had probability and statistics and I could not keep them straight. So I took a bunch of sheets of paper and I scotch taped them together um, so that I, I had a sheet about three feet wide and I started a timeline and I put everything on the timeline. Everything I learned in art history went on the timeline. Everything I learned in biology or physics went on the timeline. Everything I learned in probability and statistics went on the timeline. I mean the original dates of when these things emerged, like probability and statistics in the 1500s, um, and the dates of the poetry, and suddenly something started to happen. I started to be able to see relationships, and I saw all of these as parts of a common story. And I, I built that timeline, it finally ended up being seven feet wide, and and then I didn't need it anymore. And I didn't need it anymore because it was in my head. And it's been in my head ever since. And so the way I do science is based on the timeline. It's based at looking at the 13.73 billion years uh, of evolution of the cosmos, every aspect of it. You know, I've been published in 11 different, published or in peer reviewed journals or given lectures at scholarly conferences in 11 different fields from cosmology and evolutionary biology and information science, um, all over the map, neuroscience, a whole bunch of things. Why? Because these are parts of a common discipline. These are parts of a common story. They do not belong separated in pieces. They belong pulled together into one giant panoramic epic story, and then we need to learn what science should be from that story. And what we find is a universe that's vastly different than we're told. In 1850, um, teleology was canceled out of science. And not even by a major scientist, it, by a scientific popularizer. And then everybody went along with him. And so the future was removed from our sense of causality. And only prior causes counted after 1850. But that's not the way the cosmos seems to operate. There seem to be implicit structures at every step of the way. And what is an implicit structure? It's a future waiting to be born with very specific characteristics. For example, um, in the first 320,000 years of the universe's existence, this universe was a plasma of particles. And a plasma means particles that are bouncing into each other at super speeds, ricocheting off each other, somehow maintaining their integrity, and then ricocheting off something else, again, at a speed much higher than two bullets colliding in midair, and yet retaining 
their integrity and doing it all over again. That's astonishing because, in fact, protons, which is what we're talking about pretty much, a proton is a social process. A proton is three quarks. Um, and and that there's something you have to know from Aristotle here, and it's been influencing us ever since. You will find the whole modern program of science, including its prejudices, in two pages of uh, Aristotle's um, metaphysics. And it says that if you break things down to their tiniest parts, and you understand the laws of those tiniest parts, think about this for a second, laws, tiny parts, that's a metaphor, laws. Laws are something that Aristotle would know as applying primarily to human beings at that point. But if you understand the laws of those tiniest parts, you will understand everything you need to know about a system. No, I am sorry, Aristotle, excuse my language, but fuck you. That's not the way it works. It's the way things come together and form emergent properties and form team identities, group identities. A proton is a group identity. We think of it as the hardest, fastest, most material thing in the cosmos. It's a group identity. And if you know all of the properties of a quark, that gets you nowhere in understanding what a proton is, because when you put three quarks together, a whole new unimagined property emerges from the sociality called proton, which we think of as the most hard and fast thing in the universe. And it's such a, if you'll excuse my language again, it's such a fucking social universe that protons are born, neutrons are born, electrons are born. And uh, this is at the first 10 to the minus 30 seconds of the universe's existence. Um, and those, those quarks that, that are born at that point are profoundly social, and they come with little etiquette books built into them for all practical purposes. They know who to avoid and who to glom together with, who to be attracted to. It's called attraction and repulsion. We don't think of that as an etiquette book. We don't think of those as social rules. Well, we should. They're how different elements respond to each other, how quarks respond to each other socially. And they imply that there is already an information structure of some kind, that there is already a transfer, a transfer of information. And it's the transfer of information that allows you, a quark, to determine whether you should get together with me or you should get the hell as far away from me as you possibly can. Those are social rules. And from the social trio of three quarks comes a proton, but from a different form of three quark team comes a neutron. Now the universe is so social, aside from the etiquette book, that a, a neutron can only exist for approximately 10.6 minutes if it remains alone if it thinks this is a universe of loners. It, if it doesn't get together with a proton, it undergoes neutron decay, and it ceases to be a neutron. It loses its group identity. It loses its social identity, and it has to assume, is forced to assume another social identity, that of a proton and an escape particle. So the basic rules are that the universe is profoundly social. 
The universe is profoundly communicative. The universe is based on forming larger and larger forms of teamwork. Each form of teamwork has an emergent identity of its own. You could call it a personality, like the personality of a proton versus the personality of a neutron, the personality of one galaxy versus the personality of another galaxy. Those are both massive group identities, massive emergent properties, massive emergent properties from teamwork that produces something far grander than the individual elements of which it's a part. Aristotle produced a brilliant program that's gotten us as far as we've gotten, and now it's time to recognize Aristotle's limitations and go beyond them, and also see the implicit structures and things. Because at 320 to 380,000 years after the Big Bang, what happens? That plasma I was describing, particles moving at such super speeds that they're constantly colliding with each other and bouncing off, slows down. And we call that slowing down process cooling. And when it slows down, the most improbable social thing you can possibly imagine occurs. There are particles which, relatively speaking, are the size of the Empire State Building. And there are particles which, relatively speaking, are the size of your fist. That's a radical disparity. Radical. And yet, they discover they have a kind of inanimate longing. And the inanimate longing of the particles the size of your fist precisely fits the inanimate longing of the particles, relatively speaking, the size of the Empire State Building. And they get together, and the particles the size of the Empire State Building are protons. The particles the size of your fist, relatively speaking, um, are electrons. Not only do they precisely fit together, and the electrons are capable of going thousands of times around the proton in a very precise pattern um, every second, which is just astonishing, but the social property that emerges from this pairing that you can't that you cannot predict from simply knowing the properties of a proton or the properties of an electron is an atom it's hydrogen that is a radically unexpected thing but atoms are implicit in the cosmos that is they are lurking in the future waiting to be materialized somehow by these social teams does any of that make sense so the future counts in science. There is an implicit future with implicit group by forms of group identity waiting, just waiting for the circumstances to be right. On a different scale. So, so wow. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're, um, it's really a fun ride that you're giving us. We feel very grateful, all of us, to be along and and hearing uh, what's what's pouring out of you. And I I I just think it's I just have to say it's dear. It's really dear the way that you you went to the headmaster and you asked him in that order. Oh, I demanded you know, of him that you demanded in that order. That really was that was a timeline for for you know for the universe for the creation and you you had to hear it that way but also when you were talking about taping your notes together you were you were using your visual learning and your kinesthetic learning and you were making it make sense to you because school is so regimented artificially which you were really undoing with just following your own inner guidance of how you know of your curiosity and how you believe 
things should work. And and I well, that's a very interesting I, way of looking at it. I had never thought of it. That I'm a homeschooling before. parent. I'm an arts educator, right. and I I feel a constant fight against the regimentation of school and creative thought because what you were able to do happened because of of your power and courage and what those two things that you said you read and also because people got the hell out of your way and we are also grateful that they did because look at you knew the direction that you wanted and you had to make sense of this course of study where people are telling you what to take in order to follow a degree program but you were you had to make it make sense by taping it together in timelines that's a beautiful thing and and i guess what i i wanted to say is that it what you are mentioning about um, the implicit structure reminds me of what you mentioned about in in, um, in your book when you were talking about the sugar water, and right. yeah. <laughs> so I don't want to um, tell your book or anything. Well, but... I've got that again in in the in the upcoming book. It's, it's yeah. So if... good. Well, I'll tell that. Let me just tell the sugar Please. story. It's your room. So, Please, thank you. So we we are told in science that unless you believe in the theory of entropy and you use it all the time and you use the ideas of closed systems and open systems you are not a scientist um, it reminds me and i've said it in the new book it reminds me of something the white queen or the wed red queen or whatever it was in alice in wonderland when she says dear sometimes i've believed six impossible things before breakfast and richard dawkins points out that in in Christianity, the idea of absolute faith is I will believe this no matter how impossible it is. And that's a, basically a way of showing you belong to the group and you are willing to give up your will to the will of um, the group. And, um, and entropy is that kind of equivalent to faith in science, and um, and and one of the uh, uh, leading thinkers of the 20th century, the guy who explained, uh, who was a, a, a physicist and co and cosmologist, and explained Einstein and the theory of relativity to the world, said that you know if you claim that Maxwell's equations are wrong, then yes, we scientists can make these blunders and. If you claim that uh, anything else in basic in science is wrong, yes, well, science is always up for grabs. But if you claim that uh, entropy is wrong, then there's nothing to say for you. All you can do is uh, dissolve in the deepest humiliation. I'm sorry. Entropy is the idea that. Um, a sugar cube can't possibly exist. Why? Because using probability theory, which as I said, goes all the way back to 1500. So maybe it's time to question this 500 year old form of mathematics every once in a while. But if there are highly probable ways of being, they are going to eventually rule over the highly improbable ways of being. And hence, as Kelvin said, uh, the universe is going to dissolve in heat death. He said this in 1850. And what did he mean by heat death? Drop a sugar cube, which has a group identity, a very solid group identity, team identity, whatever you want to call it, emergent property. 
the cube. I mean, think of when you run your fingers over that cube. It's utterly unique. The facets have a kind of roughness you've never felt before. The corners have an even further interesting roughness to your fingers. It's all very distinct and very solid. But drop it into a glass of hot water and either leave it for a half an hour or stir it. And what happens? No more sugar cube. The sugar molecules are still there, all of them. But the collective identity, the emergent property, the group identity has utterly and completely disappeared. And that said Lord Kelvin is exactly what's gonna to happen to the cosmos. No, I've got news for you, Lord Kelvin. We are now able to establish a timeline of the cosmos going back 13.7 billion years. And I'm sure it's got little inaccuracies, which we will be correcting as time goes on. But the big picture is probably going to remain pretty much the same. And this is not a universe that's constantly falling down a staircase like a slinky. It's a universe that like a, that's like a slinky, but it's climbing up. And that is the great mystery facing science, or the subtitle of the God problem is uh, how a godless cosmos creates. And that really is the big mystery, except the creation process to an extent is finding an invisible staircase that was always implicitly there, but awaited the right conditions to appear. So the future beckons us as well as uh, the causal past moves us forward. And to look only at the causal past is to be blind to the universe we live in, and that is unacceptable in science. Remember, the second law of science is look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And an interesting thing happened to me a couple of days ago. When I mentioned being interested in science, uh, this was a political interview I was doing, the interviewer said, oh, thank God you participated in science fairs. I used to be a science fair coach. And I thought, what? Science fairs? I never participated in a science fair in my life. Yes, I co-designed a computer at the age of 12 that won some science fair awards, but I didn't enter it in a science fair and I didn't do it for the sake of a science fair. Science was a solitary process for me. And you've just pointed out why that proved to be such an enormous advantage to be constantly cast out of the social universe and then to find a way to make a home outside um, and then to take for granted reassembling everything because I took that for granted. I didn't think about it. I was just doing it to save myself because I was drowning um, in the information that was coming in incomprehensibly to me. That turned out to be the greatest gift that this universe has given me, my utter solitude. And I hope that people are, are taking note of those two, those two, I don't know, remember if you called them rules or what you called them, but just that the to, to maintain the courage, the, the pursuit, the courage, are, yes. right. And, and seeing, looking right at what's under your nose. And I think you could also call that staying curious, uh, you know, seeing things as if you're seeing them for the first time, even though you've seen them every day of your life, because right. that's what you described with the pond water. 
And there's something else about my body of work. My body of work includes not just the Lucifer Principle and, and uh, Global Brain and, and my hard-nosed science books, if you can call them that, because they're all from a very different point of view than is accustomed to in science. But it also includes books like How I Accidentally Started the 60s and Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Because here I was addicted to the idea of group behavior at the age of 10, and I've been addicted to it ever since, and yet I've never been a part of a group. That was probably a huge advantage because the social part of me that needs groups has, has found groups by being fascinated with them as an outsider. And um, God, what was I telling you? Um, but the point is that I sensed, and I don't know how, again, when I was 12 years old, when I was 12 years old, my mom dragged me off to meet with the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo, and I'm sure it was a courtesy call, and it was going to be five minutes, because what head of a graduate physics department wants to talk to a 12-year-old? And we were in his office for an hour. Why? Because the hottest issue of the time was Big Bang versus Steady State Theory of the Universe, and it all depended on the interpretation of the Doppler shift, and we spent an hour discussing the interpretation of the Doppler shift and its implication for Big Bang versus Steady State. And as I said, it was 1955, the year when Fred Hoyle was convinced he was about to destroy Big Bang Theory um, forever. And uh, somehow at the same age, I intuited that there was an ecstatic experience, that there was uh, a transcendent experience of some kind. And I wasn't seeing it in the world around me, and I especially wasn't seeing it in my parents' synagogue. And, uh, and it seemed to be instantiated in the word, a word that came from popular music, soul. And I was fascinated by that experience, which seems to be a profoundly individual experience, but in reality is the most profound group experience, one of the most profound group experiences you can have. And that is an aspect of mass behavior too, the way our emotions are engaged and we occasionally feel we have come in contact with the larger being of which we are part, with that group identity of which we are a part, that emergent identity of which we are a part. Um, and it is crucial to incorporate what we call mystic experiences and spiritual experiences and rock and roll experiences uh, and the gods inside of us, which is what I started calling it when I was roughly 12 years old. Um, it is crucial to incorporate that in our body of science. It fits. It is part of the profound sociality of the universe and this aspect of emergent properties coming from smaller parts, and we are smaller parts. And one of the metaphors that appears in my first two books is, look, you're 100 trillion cells, and each of those cells is theoretically capable of living on its own. Um, I mean, Katerino, you know that from uh, 3D printing organs. Um, the self-assembly is the miracle of the process, but those cells could exist for a while on their own. And yet those hundred trillion cells participate in something that no single one of them is capable of comprehending. No single one of them has a sense. 
that there is a Katerina, there is a Victoria, there is a Jamie, there is a Ceci Rahim, um, that a Gilbert. Um, the, your cells do not know that self that you know every day, which is an emergent property, a group identity, and one of the most hard and fast solid things in the universe, because that's what group identities are. That's what team identities, the emergent identities Howard, of teams are. Howard, I yep. have a question. Can you, because that's a fascinating um, concept, can you please uh, develop, explain a little bit more about the idea of emergent property? And then maybe if you could connect it to the gene and meme idea, um, if that works for you. Otherwise, can, if you could just spend a moment discussing emergent property, that would be really fantastic. Okay, um, it's about 1860, I think, and John Stuart Mill and his friend George Henry Luz, who are both fascinated by science, um, are sitting around uh, John Stuart Mill's living room in, in England, and they're thinking about things. And it's uh, recently been discovered that, first of all, Priestley has isolated oxygen, and I believe he's isolated hydrogen and a few other gases. And it's been discovered that you could take uh, two bell jars that look identical. You know, bell jars are clear, uh, they're glass, and you can look straight through them and there's nothing in there. And uh, not that you can see anyway, but actually there is something in there. And one of the bell jars is oxygen, which just looks like any other air you've ever seen. And if you stuck your hand in and waved your hand through, it would feel like any other air you've ever waved your hand through. And in the other bell jar is hydrogen. Now, if, again, you do the Aristotelian thing, garbage in, garbage out, understand the elements, and you understand absolutely everything, take the two bell jars and combine them, and what are you going to get? Well, you have two bell jars of clear gas, so you're going to get Two bell jars of clear gas, two bell jars worth in one jar. Okay, now put a spark or a match in there. What are you going to get? Well, Aristotelian logic, you've put in heat, um, you've got two gases, you're going to get two warm gases. Um, and that is not what happens. The whole damn bell jar explodes, and you're lucky to get away with your face still intact. And it explodes in an explosion, this astonishing new property that cannot be predicted from the property of ox properties of oxygen or the properties of hydrogen or the properties of a match um, at all. And so they're trying to think, they're thinking, okay, all the math that we know from Newtonian science, because Newtonian science has been dominant um, ever since uh, 1700, and, and science is thought of as identical with doing the kind of math that Newton did. And these two guys are realizing in 1850 or 1860, I think it might have been 1870, that there's no way in hell Newtonian-style math is ever going to be able to explain this kind of thing. So they come up with a name for it. They bounce around. A, one of them calls it heterotrophic properties, which is a little obscure, but of course, a scientist like obscure terminology. 
uh, and they go for a, a more accessible term, emergent properties. So that's what emergent properties are. Emergent properties, the example that appears in two of my books now, the eighth book, it's going to appear in it for a second time. You've got a guy standing on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. He's 100 trillion cells. Those 100 trillion cells have an emergent identity. And then emergent identity is Martin Luther King. A bullet comes and hits him, I believe, in the neck. Well, it doesn't do that much damage. Um, of the 100 trillion cells, almost all of them are still functional. Maybe you lose 200,000 or something like that. But the vast majority of them are still functional. And yet something absolutely essential disappears. Martin Luther King. The body is there. The cells are there. The emergent identity, the personality, if you want to call it that, is no longer there. And it was something as vital as the cells of which it was made. In fact, more vital because it too was an element in larger social emergent properties. Martin Luther King Jr. was the voice of a new social movement, which is the very kind of social team that produces new emergent properties that we're talking about. It was the civil rights movement, which produced profound changes in Western society. Does that give any sense of what an emergent property is? Absolutely. If, if this were a universe yes. of entropy, mm -hmm. the universe has produced lots and lots of cosmic dust. And uh, we'll forget about the fact that even cosmic dust is an emergent property. Even cosmic dust is a group identity. But according to entropy, that should be evenly sifting through the universe right now. It's not. It is gathered in massive, formable swirls called galaxies. It is, ga it is gathered in billions of billions of those galaxies. Each one has a unique personality, but each one has the emergent identity that we associate, the group identity that we easily associate with a galaxy. Big, potato-shaped, and if it's further along in its evolution, it has spiral arms. Spiral arms, that's an emergent property. That's a mystery. That's a miracle. How the fuck did that happen? And I have still seen no convincing explanation of how spiral arms come to be. So if entropy were true, we'd just have a random sift of cosmic dust. But instead, the cosmic dust has gathered in galaxies, it has gathered in suns, it has gathered in planets, it has gathered in moons, and it is gathered in the six or seven of us in this room right now, um, intersecting, communicating with electrons, with formful, meaningful batches of electrons. So knowing these things, can we predict the flow of an emergent property and bring about world peace? Well, that is not easy. One thing that we know um, is opposites are joined at the hip. And competition and collaboration are vitally joined 
um, the, the period of competition in this cosmos starts with what I call the Great Gravity Crusades. Remember 320,000 to 380,000 ABB after the Big Bang? And the first atoms just came whomping out of the nothingness from the combination of electrons and protons. And there were some very distinct forces at work in the cosmos up until then. Um, but there was a force that didn't exist yet. I, I mean, it existed implicitly. It existed in the future of the universe, but it hadn't reared its head yet. And now with atoms, that force began to rear its head. And it was far more subtle than the strong force, the weak force, and the electromagnetic force, far more subtle. So subtle that if we'd been around at the time, we would have predicted it couldn't have had any influence whatsoever on the cosmos. And that force was gravity. And that started the era of the great gravity crusades because atoms gathered in social clumps. And then they competed with each other. A bigger clump went up against a smaller clump and the bigger clump won and it swallowed the smaller clump whole. And then it went off and competed with other smaller clumps. And if it managed to maintain its group identity instead of being swallowed the way most things were, um, it could eventually become a star, a planet, or a moon. Um, but there was tremendous competition and the astronomers call these competitions carnivorous. Um, that's their term and they don't regard it as an airy fairy metaphor at all. Um, so we, but what did all this competition lead to? Massive social cooperation. What is a solar system? It is a form of really massive social cooperation. Um, the planets are gravity balls that were competing in the era of the great gravity crusades. And they are the rare gravity balls among the millions or billions. They are the few survivors, eight of them, as we count planets these days in this particular solar system. And how did they survive? By working out a cooperative agreement with the sun. Okay, I will move at a certain speed. I will stay at a certain distance. And because of my speed and centrifugal versus centripetal force, I will be in a perpetual loop around you. You will be at the center and you will dominate. Okay, now that may sound like a really ridiculously anthropomorphic term to say that a sun will dominate at the center of a solar system, but it's not. How do we determine who dominates by who controls? And what is there to control when it comes to a solar system? A solar system, our solar system, takes 235 million years to travel around the core of the galaxy. And it too has worked out its compromise with the core of the galaxy. It doesn't fall into it. It continues in this movement around it. Um, and what determines where we go? What determines this grand trip? The mass 
of the sun is so vastly greater than the mass of the planets or the moons that it's the sun that determines the motion around the galactic core of the planets and the moon. And it's the planets that determine, that work with another bunch of courtiers who have worked out a deal, a collaborative deal. Okay, I'll circle around you. It's a hierarchical arrangement. And those are moons. And the whole thing circles around the core of the galaxy. And, and you can imagine how many other entire systems of this kind are circling around the core of that galaxy. In other words, it's, you remember the turtles all the way down? Uh, it's, it's social identities all the way up and all the way down. It's the emergent personality of a social grouping um, all the way up and all the way down. And that emergent identity is more real than the parts of which it's made. So, I'm... In you, right now, every minute, two billion cells are dying and being replaced. Does that change your identity? No, your identity is really the dominant controlling force like the sun in a solar system. Right, I, I'm thinking of that macrocosm and microcosm view of what you're saying and going back to your words when you said that the universe is not falling down a staircase like a slinky, it's a spiral and climbing up. And that can be, I'm again, thinking about your education with respect to learning. If, if a person makes a mistake and then thinks, um, you know, or repeats a mistake, for example, and then thinks I haven't learned that that doesn't propel the person forward and motivate toward more learning. But if, if we consider that we are moving up a spiral, and that's, that is our emergent collective consciousness as well, um, then that seems like that kind of uh, mindset would continue keeping us on our path. And, and I'm just, I'm really curious about how you were able to, to maintain your uniqueness of thought and, and to trust um, the, the structure that you saw because of your curiosity as well. Well, absorbing two books a day will do it to you. And reading the Scientific American from cover to cover, even when you don't understand the article, and learning that if you plow ahead and get it all the way to the end, you will have understood something um, by the end. Uh, that's how my life had organized itself. Books saved me. Books raised me the way Mowgli was raised by wolves. Books saved me. Books gave me an alternative world, a virtual world, and in fact, one virtual world after another in which to live. And so I've lived in virtual worlds since I was 10 years old, long before the term virtual world existed. And it, it's how I continue to learn, live a good part of my life today. Of course, we all do, but I probably live it a lot more in the virtual world than most people. And in that virtual world, yes, I'm subject to social forces, but I've learned to organize social forces. I've learned to pull together groups. You alluded in the, uh, in, or Katerina alluded in the introduction to the fact I was in bed for 15 years with a serious illness. That meant I was no longer able to deal with the real world. It wasn't available to me. And so I eventually learned that I was gonna have to have two computers set up next to the bed. 
and have a keyboard on my lap. Um, and, and I could use this thing that I'd been on since 1983 called the internet um, in 1988. And I lived virtually on the internet for 15 years. And I, I um, organized three scientific groups, which did some important work. What first was called the Group Selection Squad. And it got a concept that was considered absolutely forbidden in evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. Um, was considered ludicrous, laughable, um, called group selection. And I got that accepted by getting it accepted in the New York Times and then in Science Magazine. And that was it. Everything turned around. And then I organized a group called the International Paleopsychology Project and pursuing the history of, the, uh, of mentation, um, perception, and, and emotion from the beginning of the cosmos till what's going on in your head as we have this conversation. And it was a multidisciplinary group and it was exhilarating. It was astonishing. And because it was uh, the internet, um, didn't matter where the people were. My most brilliant collaborator was in Israel. Didn't matter. Because um, with, with uh, email, you could time shift. So, um, so I've been forced into these strange alternative realities and what a fucking gift it's been. What an astonishing gift it's been. And, and you know, once you hit a certain age, I don't know what age that is, you're, you're pretty well formed. And I was myself and unable to be anything else but um, and unable to, to work within groups unless I ran them, unless I, I constructed them myself um, from a very early age. It's as if, um, well, it's as what we have experienced, not to compare um, this brief time with your long time that you were in bed, but that this isolation has really turned everything completely inside out so that we aren't really isolated. We're more connected than we've ever been Brilliant. because of what you were yes, mentioning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the last three years, um, I haven't been able to work in a uh, cafe anymore. And I used to be the social organizer in cafes, even though I, I work so hard that I'm very rude. Because if you interrupt me while I'm formulating seven sentences in my head, and you interrupt me for even a fraction of a second, those sentences will disappear. I have to catch them before they can, it's like being a juggler, being a writer and a thinker. So I can be very rude, but in the time when I get a break, I tend to be the social organizer. I haven't had that privilege for three years. I've been sitting in my bedroom. That's where I am right now, talking to you. And I've been living virtually, but hey, you know, I'm used to it. I've been in virtual worlds since I was 10 years old. Virtual worlds saved my life when I was 10 years old. And they saved my life again from 1988 to 2003 when I was stuck in a bed. So I'm used to it. Hey, you know, it's a wonderful world. And you've gathered us all here virtually because well, of you. you gathered me. And I was profoundly <laughs> grateful because NYU is my... That's where I went to school. Oh, that's great. And that's where I so, had some amazing experiences. Family. Yeah. Well, we would, if, would you like to discuss your book a bit while you're here? 
Well, which one? I mean, the most recent book your, is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me. Your choice, of course. Yeah, I, yeah your choice. So that's Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Uh, I had nothing to do with rock and roll music. I grew up listening to Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Bartok, and Stravinsky. Uh, popular culture was the culture of the kids who used to beat me up. But I had a chance. Um, and it's a long story as to how I got the chance, and NYU was completely responsible for it. I had a chance to escape graduate school. I had fellowships at four grad schools. Remember the head of the graduate physics department who had told my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him? Like, maybe I didn't tell you that story when we got out of his office. He said, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said to my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships at, in theoretical physics at any school he wants. And he was wrong. I eventually tried to go into neuroscience, which didn't have a name yet. I was going to have to paste it together myself. Um, and I had four grad school fellowships. And I skipped out because I had a chance to go into popular culture and realize that popular culture was where a reality lay that I had never had access to and would never get access to again if I went into grad school. I'd be giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students at a time in exchange for a college or a, a psychology credit. And I would never see those ecstatic experiences, those, tra those transcendent experiences, those rituals where the gods come alive inside of us. I would never see them in my life. And it was one of the most vital things to my existence to somehow find those lands where the gods were. And I found my way. I stumbled and fell my way into a field I had known nothing about, rock and roll, and became the ultimate expert, because that's what you have to do. If you're, if you're going to regard each of the specializations as a pixel in a big picture, as a puzzle piece in a big jigsaw puzzle, then you're going to have to be able to capable, be capable of mastering each one, if only for three months, while you write a chapter of a book about it, um, and then move on. And it's an essential, I, I've never talked about this before, that is an essential skill to be able to step into something and become the ultimate expert. I became the ultimate expert in rock and roll, um, and I've been the ultimate expert in 11 different scientific fields. Hey, you know, that's, <laughs> that's adventure. That's what intellectual life should be about. Well, it sounds like you feel like you may, you achieve expertise and then here comes the book. So <laughs> thank you. Katarina, it looked like you and Mike. Perhaps. Oh no, I wanted just to agree. <laughs> yes, this is this. When we do this, when we flash the mics on and off, that's the same thing as applause. Ah. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of applause, but of course, oh, you said that you're that. Um, yes, I'm not looking at the screen. You're not looking at this. He's not looking at the screen, folks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so thank you for the flashing. That feels very good. Thank you for describing it to me. Yes, everybody, everybody is, is happily uh, mic flashing. And if you um, cared to speak about Global Brain, um, then the mic is yours. And if friends on stage have a question, um, maybe if you have a few more minutes, Howard, if that's okay with you. Right. Um, well, I do, do have to, I yeah, have you need to run and, and, uh, and maybe one so minute. I'm going to have to prepare for that, but, I, but let's give it another 10 minutes.
Thank you so much and so generous of you to share your time with us. We are really appreciating it deeply. Well, I appreciate it. I really, you have me glowing. I really appreciate it. Again, (laughs) it's NYU. NYU was what gave me the chance to escape grad school, if you can believe it. When I was in my junior year, um, poetry was extremely important to me. Poetry is connected to all these things we cannot articulate and cannot find a way to articulate in a normal, rational way, but with things we need to understand and feel and touch, and we get to do that in poetry. And poetry became profoundly important to my life when I was about 14 years old. So I was taking poetry writing courses from the poet in residence. And one day he said, Bloom, wait until everybody leaves the classroom, close the door, sit down in that seat, And he pointed to the bawling out chair opposite his desk. So I waited until everybody left. I closed the door. I sat down in the bawling out seat. And he said, look, you, last year I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year I'm telling you, you are the literary magazine. You are the editor. You do not even have a faculty advisor the minute you walk out that door, you're it. Now walk the hell out that door. And I did. And, uh, and I turned it into an experimental graphics and literary magazine, and it caused an uproar in the New York commercial art community, which I didn't even realize existed. I was so uh, mired in living at NYU or in being at NYU, it didn't occur to me. And that gave me an opportunity to found a commercial art studio, which I realized would be a a periscope position into popular culture. And it allowed me to stumble my way into rock and roll. And guess what I discovered when I got into rock and roll? The land where the gods are. The rituals where the gods inside of us come alive. So I got into the area I needed to be in more than anything else through a series of total accidents. And again, through being able to become the expert on something in a relatively short amount of time. Well, uh, thank you so much, Howard, for sharing um, about your work, your whole body of work. And I really like how you were explaining um, not just about Global Brain, which is you know the title of the room, but you actually went and talked about some of the other works and how they connect together. And I was just seeing on your website that you have something there that kind of talks about your entire body of work and how it connects together. Um, but I actually have one question for you from um, Global Brain, um, if you don't mind. And so, you, you know, you talk about group selection a lot um, and, you know, how it's just, you know, how we've gotten to this point. A lot of things had to work together and think the same way for them to just work, I guess. Um, and But, you know, in this society now, a lot of people believe in individualism and just, you know, the, the, the culture of, you know, being your own person, like very unique and different from um, everybody else. But, you know, and that's not a bad thing. But, you know, based on what you've, you've talked about, it seemed like there might be some benefits to that group selection. So I guess my question to you is, how could we maybe get people to think more like that? And if they already are, how could we make them realize that, hey, there could be some ways that you could capitalize on this to hopefully move forward and make the world a better place? Like, how do we pass this knowledge on? Well, we're profoundly cooperative and profoundly competitive at the same time, and it's part of the yeast of the universe. 
this collaboration between competition and uh, and collaboration, and co co and uh, cooperation, and um, if you think you are vitally individualist, look at me. You know, I'm like out there in outer space when it comes to other humans and social groups. At least I was as a child, and yet. Who wrote those books that saved me? Who came up with the language those books were written in? Who came up with the invention of the printing press? Uh, all of these things were gifts to me from other human beings. Each of these authors who came to me summed up in his own existence the thousands of writers and thousands of people that he was in contact with all the time. You and I when we carve out our individual identities, actually define it in terms of the subcultures to which we feel we belong. And it's those subcultures that help us identify who we are. The mere word individualism comes from somewhere and you could find tens of thousands of books about it. And every word you use and probably every phrase you use in thinking your individualism through comes from armies of other human beings. So it is necessary that we, that we uh, continue a fruitful balance between collaboration and competition and that we do something we have been doing and we don't know how we've done it and we don't know that we've done it. The in Western civilization, which is the only civilization that has only invent that has ever invented individualism, that has ever invented human rights, that has ever invented an anti-slavery movement, that has ever invented anti-racism, that has ever invented the idea of saving the planet, Western civiliza civilization is it. And right now, Western civilization is under threat from uh, Vladimir Putin, who believes that Western civilization is a curse and a sin, that liberal democracy is uh, sinful and perverse um, and a, 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 an abomination against God himself, because Putin uh, feels that the, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church is a vital part of Russian civilization. He doesn't regard Russia as a country, it's a civilization. And Xi Jinping, thinks that the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party, should be able to dictate for all of us and have the most intrusive form of social surveillance uh, anyone has ever imagined, beyond anything anybody's ever imagined. You have a social credit score that comes from watching every move that you make and making sure that you're in line with the Chinese Communist Party. And if you use a public bathroom, there is facial recognition technology that sees who you are, checks your, your social credit score, and if you do not have an adequate social credit score, will not give you a piece of toilet paper. So there are choices in this world. Um, I choose to live in a society that has more individual freedom and at the same time the freedom to associate. How else would I have ever gotten to live in this vast variety of social worlds? rock and roll, um, the political world, the scientific world, um, many scientific worlds. And it is important that we cherish these freedoms. And one of the things we need to know is that within Western civilization, we've increased the peace in the world by a factor of 10. If you've been born in one of those lovely indigenous cultures that lives in peace with its fellow man and in harmony with nature, 
your odds of dying a violent death at the hands of a fellow human being would have been 10 times what they are today if you'd been born in Western civilization in 1650. Your odds of dying a violent death at the hands of a fellow human being would have been 10 times what they are today. Somehow we have increased the peace in the world by a factor of 10. And now we need to do it so that we can live at peace with Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin or other leaders who hopefully are a little bit more liberal and democratic um, than they are. But it's, uh, I don't know how we've increased that piece. Um, what's his name? God, the, psych, the psychologist, the linguist actually, at Emma, who went from MIT to Harvard. Um, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, but he has done some brilliant work on this, The Better Angels of Our Nature which he actually derived from a couple of paragraphs in the Lucifer Principle, but then expanded absolutely brilliantly, uh, is about this. And his next book about humanism um, is, is about this. And we have to learn what we've done so that we can extend it and increase the... Because look, if our great-great-grandparents could increase the peace in the world by a factor of 10 through means we do not know, um, this is one of those look at the things written under your nose as if you've never seen them before moments. That piece has been there and we haven't seen it. Now it's time, if they could give us 10 times the peace in the world that we've had in 1650, then we owe 10 times that peace to our great great grandchildren. Or we're not picking up the thread and running with it. We're not paying off um, or paying forward. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it. Um, thank you. Thanks for coming. Oh my gosh, we have only one minute more <laughs> of your time. Um, Katarina, do you want to say anything uh, before we wrap up? Or um, I don't know if uh, Victoria um, wants to yeah. ask something. I actually wanted to ask Coward because I run a, a actually a book club on Clubhouse. And you mentioned reading two books a day um, from the time that you were 10. So I'm wondering, what is the most prized book on your bookshelf today? Um, I have discarded, I mean, my books are still there, but I haven't looked at them in forever um, because I went totally electronic about 10 years ago. I just couldn't stand paper anymore. I have physical disabilities and I can't, I have a hard time turning a page. It's a torture for me. But the most prized book is probably Sociobiology by E.O. Wilson, 1976. Because it pulled together a lot of elements that just you weren't allowed to pull together until then. The mere word sociobiology gave you permission to put together social stuff with biological stuff. And to me, that was a precious gift, that permission. And there's another one. And it, it, again, it's from the distant past, the 1970s. It's The Lives of a Cell, um, uh, and it's uh, by Lewis Thomas, who was the head of Sloan Kettering. And it's the book that introduced me to the concept of the superorganism. Thank you so much. Yes, I mean, I thank wish I could find so something more, more current to give you, um, but those are the biggies. And, and then there's a book on parallel distributed stuff uh, that came out in the 1980s, uh, 1986, 
and uh, I think from the Santa Fe Institute, but the whole concept of parallel distributed intelligence, which now lies behind every supercomputer you've ever seen, but also lies underneath human societies, animal societies, the evolutionary process itself, um, was a profoundly important contribution. Well, thank you so much, um, Well, I just want to Howard. make one word of encouragement. Oh, yes. when, you are, when you are teaching, when you're homeschooling, um, I never in a million years thought of the fact that what I was doing at NYU with that timeline was ripping apart the curriculum that I was being given and putting it back together in my own terms. It was one big story, one big unified story. But if you can give a story structure to your kids to follow, story rivets us. Story makes sense of things to us. Now, I prefer the story of the universe from the Big Bang to what's going on in your brain as you're having this conversation, but I guess other people could pick other stories or other aspects of the story. But story and knowing your history and putting it together meticulously and, and quintuple fact-checking everything that you do all of that um, can be enormously useful because it's how kids can learn for themselves. And they have that privilege these days with Google. I was sitting opposite, a friend of mine had an art show and he invited me to the after party, it was a dinner, and two guys were sitting across from me who had six-year-olds, and one of them said, well, you know, my six-year-old has been Googling submarines ever since he was three years old. And by the time he got to first grade, he was the equivalent of uh, having a bachelor's in submarines. And the other father said, yeah, the same thing happened to me with dinosaurs. My son just got involved with it when he was three and was the ultimate expert by the time he was five. We live in an era where self-learning is so available in ways that it simply wasn't when I was a child. And it's marvelous, it's fantastic. And anybody who tries to take a kid's screen away is sinning. Yeah, I to um, second that, I'm teaching summer camps all summer long that are about digital storytelling and we're using claymation, so on iPads with clay, neat. for kids to tell the stories that they're interested in, either something that's personal to them or about, you know, as you're saying, research something and then tell it digitally through clay in animation. And it's it is riveting, and it's their story, and then they it's their it's their guided learning too. Well, you're it's, making me smile. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. So yes, putting things together in stories is a very 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 important skill, and you can put together your own story by going after off after the stuff that interests you and seeing how it all fits together in a story with a beginning, middle, and end. The end never quite ends. The end is the next beginning. But um, so I'm all for it. Well, I hope everybody goes. And if they haven't read your your newest book, I mean, go for them all. But um, yeah, Global Brain that um, we we're mentioning. Global Brain is the one that, that will uh, have yeah. you hang from the ceiling and seeing everything yeah, upside right. down. And it will make a great deal more sense upside down than it made when you were sitting on the floor. It's a hallelujah for us, really. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for having me.
Yes, um, thank and, you. And have a have a wonderful night. And hopefully, I will see you all again soon. So we would love to have you back. Thank you so much. Well, that yes, that would be terrific. Maybe when your okay. new book comes out, you'll you'll come. That back. would be terrific. Yes. Okay. Yeah, wonderful. Have a good night. Bye. Good night. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for sharing for coming. Thank you. And thank you everyone for coming, uh, being here, listening, asking questions. And uh, yeah, um, of course, uh, the best to you, Howard. And we hope to read very soon your new book. So everyone stay tuned for the new book that will be coming out. And we're really looking forward to it. And um, yeah, enjoy the rest of the evening or morning, wherever you are around the world. Uh, middle of the night for Jamie. And uh, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Howard. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone.